0: This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now we're consumed every day for the past few months with domestic problems, flu, COVID, the economic fallout from the war in Ukraine, many things to worry about, mostly people's inability to earn as much as they need. Nurses in particular, crisis in the health service here and in Britain and across Europe, a general feeling that people are afraid, either economically or medically. And in all of that, a much larger danger looms, and it is as a result of Putin's invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February 2022. It was expected to be short and sharp. It's still existing and indeed escalating. And where do we go from here? And where does the world go from here? Because this is a geopolitical problem. It's a a moment, a defining moment for the future, I think, of the world we're inhabiting. And it's a pleasure to welcome to the program now, John Kampfner. John is one of the most distinguished British journalists and authors. He is now executive director at Chatham House, which is a leading British Well, Independent Policy Institute, it says, which is a think tank, really, I think. And his particular concern is where Europe might go from here. Because, as we saw in the United States last week, instability is built in there to that society, that powerful country. And across Europe, there are differences of opinion. John, thank you very much for joining us. As I said in my introduction we tend to be, for obvious reasons and necessary reasons, consumed by the crisis in the health service and fears about employment and inflation. But this moment, when you take into account Russia, China, Taiwan, Ukraine, and the instability, should we call it, in the U.S., and the growing sense of isolationism, would you agree with me that this is a defining moment for the world for perhaps several decades to come.
1: Well, good morning, Eamon. Nice to be back. Happy New Year to you and And your your listeners. Um, On this very morning, actually, a few hours ago, I was um, reading in the Financial Times uh, a news piece quoting a report from an American institute, the Atlantic Council. And, oh, my God, if something is designed to put you off your breakfast... Um, it is this. It it was saying nearly half of top foreign policy experts think that Russia will become a failed state or will break up by 2033 in 10 years' time, while a large majority expect China to try to take Taiwan by force. And it goes on by saying other countries will uh, get uh, their own nuclear arsenal. And it is a picture of inherent instability. And I think that's I mean, I don't know about the specific details, and with China and Taiwan, it could happen any time, but again, it might not, and you have Bolsonaro inciting his people to storm the whole parliamentary complex in Brasilia um, yesterday, the exact mirror of what happened a couple of years ago with Donald Trump at uh, the US Congress at Capitol Hill, uh, the task for people generally, citizens, and for their governments, is just to assume, just to build in this instability, this potential for mayhem into the way we lead our lives. And that's a kind of depressing thought, but nothing beats, you know, you should always expect the worst and hope for the best. And I think this decade coming up, the 20s that we're now into into its third year, is is just uh, an era that is going to define how we interpret democracy and what we think of the rule of law and issues of war and peace.
0: Yes, and there seems to be a distinct absence in the West of statesmen, of a figure that can, as it were, rally the various factions. Biden has successfully done it, in my opinion, through NATO in terms of the threat from Putin. But as a piece you wrote that I have in front of me suggests it's fairly tenuous. Europe isn't really united and for example there are differences between France and Germany traditionally in the last few decades close allies there are important differences though and there are differences also between the US and Europe as well. That's right. I mean
1: Germany had Angela Merkel and uh, sales uh, shares in her have been sold since there's been a new way of looking at German relations with Russia. And was she too soft on Putin? That's for another time. And you and I have talked about that before. But she had charisma of her in her own manner. And she was a, if not the dominant force in Europe. Her successor, Olaf Scholz, is absolutely not that. Uh, he's kept his coalition in Berlin together reasonably well. But on the international stage, he does not cut a figure that you would look at and you think, right, he can help us solve the world's problems. Germany has become quite dangerously, in my view, introspective. Macron in France does have that swagger, and he is now, I would say, the dominant force in the Franco-German relationship. He's developed good relations with Washington and with Biden. Biden, is he going to stand uh, already in his 80s and a man already who looks and sounds Frail, But I agree with your analysis, Eamon, that he's done better than he's given credit for on the Russia-Ukraine question, holding NATO together, holding the transatlantic alliance together. You look at the, the sorry state of Britain and, okay, Rishi Sunak is not the clown that was Boris Johnson. He's not the sort of extremist wacko that Liz Truss in her 49 days was, but <laughs> <Forty-four>. he's very... <laughs> Say again?
0: 44 days.
1: Well, it depends how you cut it, actually, whether oh, she see, had a okay. resignation or actually the removals van came. But I can't <laughs> imagine she'd actually unpack many boxes anyway um, uh, between the removals van coming to deliver and, and taking stuff away. But no, she came and went in that sort of volley of, of madness for which ordinary people are still paying the price. Sunak is much more rational, he's much more pragmatic, but there's just an expectation that the Tories are flailing around and and living out their last uh, year or two, and Britain, partly through Brexit and partly through other things, just absolutely has so little clout in the world. It's fair to
0: say, John, and sorry to interrupt you, that whilst uh, Boris Johnson may be a deeply unlovable person, Boris Johnson led... On Ukraine, um, and Britain backed him when this began. And that was important. And that, if, if it weren't for all his other faults, he does have the outline of a statesman. And Britain does have in its history a belief in taking the lead and standing up for freedom.
1: Yeah, you're right to, to a degree, Eamon. Um, he absolutely was, not just after uh, the 24th of February, but actually in the few months before. He was sounding the alarm, um, yes. notwithstanding Britain's sucking up to the oligarchs for years and decades, including himself before that. No, he did play an important role and he should that should be acknowledged. But it is partly his and Britain's sort of Churchill complex and yes. the Second World War and the idea that Britain is nothing if it is not leading in some military campaign. And Britain... Uh, which is part of my, my longer thinking uh, with Chatham House, has to develop a new mojo. It has to understand what its role in the world should be as an important middle-ranking power, and it shouldn't regard that as anything ignoble or humiliating. It's an absolutely fine place to be, and it's the place where where Britain belongs. I mean, there are a lot of countries now in the world. There's so much fixation on on U.S. and China, and the mischief-maker Russia and on India. But actually, there's a lot of middle-ranking countries that are doing interesting things. If you think of Australia, South Korea, Poland, South Africa, um, Argentina, Brazil, before this mayhem, Mexico, Canada. And that's where Britain belongs, in that sort of rank of second-tier powers. Turkey is the absolute crucial one on that, playing a really important role uh, in Russia and Ukraine, playing an important role in North Africa as well. So Britain does have a future, and uh, but it's not the sort of rule Britannia future that it still clings to. But I do wonder, going back to your original question, Eamon, around the quality of leadership. Well, one is obviously the, the human one, and when people get older, and I'm certainly getting older, well, we all are, and there's that whole sort of question of, Uh, things were better in my day. I'm not sure there ever was a golden age of, you know, amazing leaders. But then I also think there's this question of the damage that has been done through technology and social media around there used to be, and some people may say, well, it's a good thing. There used to be a national story, a narrative in every country in the world. People would, families would sit or huddle around a TV set, or if they didn't have one, a radio. And there would be the news, and there would be the leader, and they would explain what's going on in the world. Now people believe their truth. They believe what they want to believe. So just as Trump's people believe, um, I think without even doubting themselves, that the presidential election was stolen, from them. And the same applies to Bolsonaro's supporters who believe that a man they regard as a criminal, Lula, has stolen that that rightful seat from him. And as long as you have parallel truths, or several parallel truths, I think it's going to be incredibly difficult for any democratic leader to really strike out and be a dominant force. I think it's actually quite easy for demagogues like Trump, like Bolsonaro, like Orban in Hungary, and not to mention Putin and Xi Jinping. But actually in democracies, that's now going to be incredibly difficult.
0: Now, your piece about Europe, and just to go back to the leadership thing, it, it seems to me that if Roosevelt hadn't been there in 1939, if Churchill had not been there at the same time, you wonder what would have happened. But to go back to, to Europe now, it doesn't have a leader. It doesn't have an Angela Merkel. Now, last week, I think she conceded also that she'd been wrong about China. But she, she did have the aura, if you like, and the power that Germany has, uh, and she used it. it. As it happens, history probably won't be very kind to her, will it, John?
1: I think it will settle in a, in a medium place about her. She was, I mean, I've always, I'm always been quite positive about her, but in my uh, book, Why the Germans Do It Better, I um, was singularly critical of German foreign policy and of her, job. this was 2020, this was before the invasion some distance. Um, there was a lot of good in German foreign policy, but there was also a refusal to understand that democracy requires hard power to project it and to defend it. And that goes back to the whole German Second World War issues, um, uh, also just a sense of complacency that Russia provides its energy, America supplies its defense, and China provides its markets. And that's all very well when things are going well. But it also felt quite naive. But that said, um, she was still a dominant force on the world stage and a force for good on the world stage. And a lot of the good, not least Germany becoming a multicultural state, a much more tolerant country, much more open country. A lot of that is down to her as well. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves.
0: Now, in 1952, in the piece you've written for the New European, which is a very interesting um, piece and a very interesting um, magazine, you you quote the first NATO General Secretary, Lord Eilid, as saying famously that NATO's strategy was to keep the Russians out, to keep the Americans in, and to keep the Germans down. Yeah. (laughs) It it is rather funny if you're of a certain age, but surely today, okay, we want to keep the Russians out. It looks highly unlikely to my eye when I'm in a a depressed mood that we can keep the Americans in, and we most certainly don't want to keep the Germans down. Would you agree with that?
1: Well, it depends who you're talking to. The Brits are still... um, It's funny, as soon as Schultz did his Seitenwender speech, his uh, epochal changing speech three days after Putin's invasion, and promised that Germany would spend 2% on defense and it would do a one-off injection of 100 billion euros to sort out its absolutely ailing um, armed forces, one of the responses in amongst the praise for him and for his bravery was, "Oh, where does that leave Britain as the dominant military force? and uh, already i mean in the last week the germans and the americans were the first to follow the french in uh, sending or promising to send armored personnel carriers yes. to ukraine which is not enough it's not what the ukrainians need enough of but it's uh, it's an improvement on where we were before so germany is is moving and in a way we want germany to be an active uh, or certainly i do and and others do they want germany to be a big player now, finally, in European security, but they almost don't want it to become too big, um, I think would be a British response and possibly also a French response as well. But uh, I'm not sure, actually, now, the point about just saying it's it's not going to happen anymore, that that the Americans are going to disengage. I think, in some respects, Putin has been one of the several... Inadvertent consequences of Putin's invasion has been to strengthen the transatlantic ties. I mean, Macron declared only a few months before that that NATO was brain dead and that European defense uh, needed to be created without the Americans. That's not going to happen. That the Americans' attention was only on the Indo Pacific. In other words, Asia and China, yes. America had given up on Europe. I don't think that's happening now in the way it was. I think Europe has returned, if not center stage, then equal stage with what's going on with China and
0: uh, around there. What will happen, John, if uh, this new House of Representatives to Congress with this weak leader, Kevin McCarthy, and the people who control that house now are basically election deniers, uh, they're Trump followers, they are extreme, beyond extreme. They will be able to... Uh, control to some extent the supply of arms and money, money in particular to Ukraine. Now, you point out in the piece that you wrote for the new European that Zelensky went there and put as much pressure as he could on the Biden administration. He didn't get anything like everything he wanted. He got, but he got stuff. Now, if America through a malfunctioning Congress cannot supply the arms and the money. First of all to help Ukraine in its present uh, conflict with Russia, but also to rebuild Ukraine and make it part of the Western family as it were. Where do we go from there if America takes that turn?
1: Yeah, I mean there's different ways of looking at that. I mean when you go back to the midterm elections in at the start of November, the assumption then was going to be a landslide yes. for the Republicans. And by that, you you meant, we meant Trumpian Republicans. Now, that did not happen. Yes. Um, they scraped through in the House of Representatives, and they failed to take the Senate. Now, a couple of weeks before those elections, if you had said to any American liberal or Democrat that this would be the result. They would, would have um, bitten your arm off. They would have been absolutely relieved yes. at such an outcome. So, yes, and, and you know, it is one of those midterm elections in which the sitting president's party has suffered the least in uh, recent years and recent decades. It's absolutely yes. axiomatic. And it's a, it's a failing of the American system that basically the president has two years um, and pretty much every president has had two years before Congress is uh, hamstrung by the other party gaining uh, a significant foothold in it. So the Republicans, yeah, are far stronger than they were, but they're much, much less strong than they wanted to be. And also, yeah, I mean, it depends how right-wing you think right wing is, but Trump himself did not do well. His candidates did worse than the yes. average Republican candidates. A lot of Trump's backers like Rupert Murdoch and others are bailing from him. Lots of people on the Republican side are talking about Ron DeSantis and others as potential presidential candidates. So it's it's a more nuanced, it's a more complicated picture than that. Yeah, there are a significant group of headbangers, and they were the ones who stopped 15 rounds worth of voting uh, to make sure that McCarthy didn't become Speaker, and then eventually... <laughs> but he gave, John, so, yeah. he gave them
0: everything, John, uh, including... He gave them everything. There were only a handful yeah, of, of them, and he's given them everything, including the power... To get rid of him. Yeah, one person. Only one person required to put him under pressure. Yeah. So he uh, clearly, it, it won't function very well, and extremists are... Ineffective control because they're not really interested in governing. What they want to do is disrupt the prevailing, well, the prevailing rules of engagement. Let me ask you yeah, again. So, I mean,
1: on that aim and foot, yes. in governance terms, America is heading for another bad period. But yes, <laughs> there haven't been many periods when it's had great, uh, when it's had great governance um, in recent years. But in political terms, it will not have gone unnoticed by floating voters that the Republican Party is an absolute shower yes. at the moment. I mean, not yes. to be able to come up with the most important parliamentary position and for the whole thing to descend into days of chaos is not a good look right. for the Republicans. A party split, people almost exchanging punches, that kind of thing. So for the Democrats, again... Um, if you're just being cynical, it's 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 not a bad outcome.
0: Let me ask you again the question that you, you pose at the top of your piece. Where does Europe go from here? The possibility that America may turn to isolationism, that the MAGA Republicans make America great again, uh, which of course involves not doling out money to save Ukraine or anywhere else for that matter. Does Europe face some hard choices in terms of Uh, Whether it has an army, whether it has the deterrence to deter Russia, whether it can afford to whip Orban, and the new Czech leader who is a Russian, uh, who's expected to win the Czech. uh, No, he's not
1: expected to win, actually. I don't think Barbas will win. Um, In fact, I've written a piece about him for for next week's New European. It's it's up in the air on that. It's really, really important, though, the Czech elections coming up. The first round's coming up in a few days' time.
0: Yes. And the, the point I, I want to make or tr- I'm trying to make is that it feels, I don't know where Europe is in the power play. If there's a, if this is a moment where we're seeing a war between democracies, law abiding uh, countries and authoritarians and not just uh, Russia and China, but Iran, the Saudis and people like that, are we at a point where Europe needs to look at the world and see what its place is to protect Europe?
1: Uh, it, it, it's such an important question that you raise, Eamon, and uh, there's no simple answer to it. In fact, the British Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly gave quite an interesting speech just before Christmas talking about all of this and pointing out, and in this respect I think he's right, saying that we have to be smarter about this zero-sum goodies versus baddies, democracies versus dictatorship, because yes. the world is, in some ways has moved on. And I've been for some time now obsessed by this idea of pivot states, you know, countries that are not particularly, to coin a phrase, our cup of tea, but at the same time are broadly aligned with what we in the West and uh, are trying to do. Now, you could say that's cynical and you can only go for countries who are sort of squeaky clean in all respects, but then your um, source of alliances gets ever more diminishing. And in the global South in particular, China is wooing countries, but its its attractions are limited. So I think the West has got to rethink um, the way it does things, but when it comes to Russia, and Ukraine, you can look at this as half empty or half full. And some days I look at it in one, in some ways I look at it in the other. The half empty is Europe is at breaking point, uh, public discontent over cost of living, gas prices, and that situation is only going to get worse next year. Uh, next winter, people focusing so much on this winter actually wait till next November, December. I think it's going to get yes. even harder. And, you know, things going to crack and public support for helping Ukraine will wane and governments will therefore start to, to rein that back and all of that. Meantime, Putin plays a waiting game and it's an attritional war and he doesn't win, but he doesn't do as badly as somebody, some people thought. That's what one argument. The other more optimistic argument, which I sometimes feel, sometimes I don't feel, is that actually, Democracy was, when you look at Brexit, Trump, Marine Le Pen, everything else, a few years ago, we thought it was dead. Yes. We thought it was absolutely over. And the new era was China and a bit of Russia, and and uh, and and along with global money and corruption and everything else. And actually, it's proving reasonably resilient. So I think the, you know, if you're looking at the next five or ten years, I think the... Um, most likely outcome is going to be somewhere in the middle. It's going to be messy. Um, Ukraine is going to be frustrated at uh, a lack of support, but the support is still one hell of a lot better than anybody. Everybody just assumed Putin would walk in within four or five days, he'd get to Kiev and he'd install uh, some puppet and that would be the end. And it's been absolutely not like that. And that's a great testament, not just to Ukraine and Ukrainians, but actually to democracy.
0: Okay, John, we're very grateful to you for joining us. I should say that the piece I'm referring to is in a uh, publication called The New European. We're grateful to you for joining us. And that's John Kampfner. John is uh, a very distinguished journalist and broadcaster. And his latest book, Why the Germans Do It Better, uh, notes from a grown-up country. He's writing another book about Berlin. So uh, thank you very much, uh, John. Yeah, exactly. Good luck with your book. We're grateful to John, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.